Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. We are so glad that you're here for the last Compass Night of 2015. You've done it. You're here from the beginning. You are the survivors. You made it. And uh, we're glad that you're part of this because it not only ends the year of our study, but it also ends just about a decade's worth of study through systematic theology. And I threw, I threw you a curveball without you knowing it. Perhaps some of you may have figured it out. But I wrapped up our study of soteriology last week. But I didn't want to tell you that because I was afraid you wouldn't come back this week. Okay, when we get to the presentation of the gospel, which was last week, then we were we were done. Now we were taught, we looked at it, we understood it, we talked about advancing it. What I want to do tonight is something unique, special, based on where we've been for the last almost ten years now. We've been working our way through systematic theology, and we've covered every division, every classic division of the ten divisions of theology. If you were to go to a Bible school or a seminary, this is this these are the divisions you'd work through, and this is what we've been doing now for nine years. So in this study, I thought at the end, what we need is a transitional study that summarizes the whole thing and maybe a time for a little final exam for some of you. Now, this isn't, I'm not Pastor Pete, so this isn't, you know, I'm not going to hand out written uh, tests here. But to interact a little bit with where we've been and work our way right through logically the divisions of theology and spend some time wrapping that up for a very important purpose, which I'll reveal at the end of our time together. But let's begin uh, this historic night in some ways. For me, it's a relief a bit. I mean, we've been through so much. Let's pray. God, thank you very much for your provision for us and giving us your truth in propositional statements that we can read. We can process, we can think about things for making us in your image so that we can reason and think our way through these things that you've told us that grant us wisdom that we might know you and relate to you and reflect many of your attributes as we relate to one another. Thank you, God, as we look back over the years and consider our study and kind of tie it all together in one setting that we'd be able to think more biblically about who you are. And for those that have been with us just this last year or maybe for the last couple of years, I pray this quick 30,000-foot overview would be helpful and just be encouraging to see the whole of what has been uh, for centuries the traditional approach to systematically looking at all the important topics of the Bible. So thanks for our time together and thanks for all you provided for us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, because this is a summary, I'm not going to do what I traditionally do, and that is, and I know some of you think it's tedious, uh, perhaps, and I'm always at it, but trying to prove every statement that I make with Scripture. I won't be doing any of that tonight, because what I'm going to do is go back and summarize where we have been. In that sense, I'll make statements about all these divisions of theology uh, that will summarize all this, and I hope give you a great picture of the whole, but without the proof. So if you're hearing stuff on bibliology or pneumatology for the first time, and you go, well, I don't know if that's true or not, well, then you got to go back. It's all been archived for you, and it's all free to download and listen to at your leisure. But that is something that we won't do tonight, because we're not here to, to, to plow new ground. We're here to go back and summarize where we've been. So let's do that, and I think it'll be helpful. I've resorted, you see, to two columns on your worksheet. You notice that? Yeah, that's one way. I could have crammed a lot more in and passed worksheets. I didn't try that, but tonight I had no choice. Bibliology. Let's talk through this real quick. Bibliology, of course, all these words as you learned in this semester, is a compound between two Greek words. The last one is the same throughout. Ology, logos, is connective 
Omicron or connective O, and then L-O-G-Y, which, which represents the corpus or the, the body of teaching. And then the first part of the word, it comes from the Greek word that gives us the concept. And in this case, biblios is the Greek word for book. And so the book, which is what Bible means, this is the study of the book or the Bible. Now, there's no place to write this necessarily except for next to the word perhaps, but bibliology, the reason we study it is because it's foundational to all of theology. And because it's foundational, it's the reason that it comes first. Bibliology is the study, the foundational study, because all theology comes from bibliology. In other words, we understand bibliology is the thing that we need to have any accurate picture of truth. It's all derived from the Bible. And because of that, we have to start there. And it's one of our most involved studies. And if you've listened to none of the other Compass Nights, that's the one you certainly should start with, though we didn't do them in, in logical order. Bibliology, we made statements like this that are very important. God reveals himself in general ways. He's spoken to the fathers in all kinds of manners, all kinds of portions, and in all kinds of ways. God reveals. He lets people understand his truth. That's the word revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of the Bible, is him revealing things, exposing things, things that wouldn't otherwise be known. And his general means of revelation, certainly today that are ongoing, are two things we talk about a lot from this platform, and that is creation and conscience. Those are very important, creation and conscience. And he's doing that as he's done for all of time to reveal things about himself. But the Bible is God's specific revelation. It's not just his specific revelation. It is his unchanging and unalterable revelation. It is the thing that once it's given, it can be looked to, it can be analyzed, it can be studied. It can be the thing that anyone can see a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago or a thousand years from now and say, this is what God has said. This is what God has taught. The Bible is God's unalterable, unchanging, specific revelation. And if someone were to come up to you, interactive uh, compass night after nine years, uh, now's your time to speak up. If someone were to say, well, how in the world do I know it's God's revelation? What were the things that show me that it's God's revelation? What were some, might you say, what? Prophecy. For us, that's the most relevant. Biblical predictive prophecy. You can't get around that. When there are statements, and we, uh, our pastors and some of our ministry leaders are out dealing with our uh, pre-trib, pre-mill conference that we went to this last week, and thinking about just God's promise of reassembling the nation of Israel in its land, there's something we can see unfolding in our day, prophesied in Scripture very clearly, very plainly, and allows us to recognize, you know what, God called this before it ever happened. Not to mention all the things we were reading in the book of Daniel in our daily Bible reading recently. You can look at things that are fulfilled in time in the past and in present day we see that and you can say certainly that's the case and in the day of course it was the miraculous signs that authenticate the giving of the law in the old testament that's why the miracles surrounded joshua and moses during the classical period of the prophets elijah and elisha we saw all those miracles there so we have the torah or the law and the writings and in the new testament of course the third rash of miraculous signs with the giving of the new testament with jesus and the apostles thirdly god governed the writing of the bible uh, graduates of Compass Night. What, what, what's the special word we use to describe that? Inspiration. That's if you're uh, old school. In your Bible, if you try to find that word, you won't find that in our passage because we translate it much better now, and that's what we call it. It's a compound word. God breathe. That's what inspiration means. Because if you use the word inspiration in describing the Bible today, people will think it's like Da Vinci being inspired to paint something. Or Raphael or Michelangelo or whoever it might be. Putting something out there that they were inspired to put out there. 
See, it's not that the writer was inspired. That's not the point. And it's not that readers get inspired by it. See, we, we talk about being inspired to clean the garage or inspired to clean up your life or inspired not to do the wrong thing but to do the right thing. That's not what we're talking about. Inspired, that's what it means today. But back in the day, it meant in Latin, that's where we got the English word, inspiro, meant to breathe out. That's why the translations today, God breathed, is a much better way to translate that word. God breathed it out as though like I'm breathing out my words, the scripture, the written pages of the Bible, God breathed them out as though he were saying those things. God breathed. We believe that God governed what happened there. Oh, there it is. Is it still up there? God governed the writing of the Bible. We do call that old school inspiration. A better word for it is God breathed. And by that, we mean he superintended those authors. And you say, how could God use imperfect people to produce something that we claim is perfect? God breathed. Same way God could take someone who is fallen like Mary, although the Catholics have abused that picture of Mary in history and made her perfect, but she wasn't. The Bible's very clear about that. She needed a savior. She cries out to God as her savior, but that imperfect girl, God utilizes her to create and and produce in concert with the Holy Spirit, a perfect child. Just like these writers, whether it's Habakkuk or, or Peter or Paul, they're being used by God to produce something perfect. The inspiration, old school word for it, or the God breathing of scripture, the superintending of the writing of scripture. Of course, in bibliology, we've got to recognize how we can get from an old document that was written and inspired or God breathed through those prophets and apostles to today. So we've got a big span of time, 3,400 years. If we look back to the giving of the the first books of the Bible, Genesis, and about 2,000 years, almost 1,900 years to get to John on the island of Patmos writing the book of Revelation. So how do we get there? Well, we've got to spend a lot of time in bibliology making this, coming to this conclusion. It, It, the Bible, has been remarkably preserved, remarkably preserved. Now, some people think it's about the telephone game, that it's just been translated and translated. and tra- If someone said to you, I know the Bible has been translated hundreds of times, what would you say? Why? How many times has your Bible been translated? One time. It's been translated one time. What we've got to do is go back and figure out what these original authors said. And just like any document from antiquity, we've got to go back as far as we can to find the closest to the original copies. And what we learn about the manuscripts of the Bible is that we have a very small gap from the time it was written and the manuscripts that we have in universities and libraries and museums around the world, and we have a mass quantity of them. How many do we have ancient manuscripts dating back to antiquity, rough and dirty? How many? Dozens? Hundreds or thousands? thousands, about 5,000 ancient manuscripts that we can look at. Uh, All the way back to the oldest, we've got about 130 of the oldest, oldest papyrus manuscripts that are written on on leaves, basically, pressed reeds. That's uh, remarkable that we have so many that date back. Some would state, as we looked at in the study, even to the first century, but undisputed to the early second century. The Bible is complete. That's the assertion that we make in bibliology is that the Bible is complete. There are going to be some people that say, well, maybe 66 books isn't enough. Maybe there's more books. As a matter of fact, Dan Brown and the rest who write these sensational, what they call historical fictions that have nothing to do with history, really, nothing accurate to do with history, will say, well, we should add a lot more books to the Bible. And even your Catholic neighbor across the street, his Bible's got more books in it. But we have to look at what is called canonicity and say, is the Bible in its 66 books, Old and New Testament, 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament, is that complete? And we spend a lot of time making the case uh, that that is certainly true of what we have there before you tonight in your Bible, and that is a completed, logically attested canon or completed library of God's truth to man. 
We also believe and have to spend some time with in bibliology, making the, the assertion that God aids our understanding of the Bible. God gets actively involved in the third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand the Word of God. What's that doctrine? What's, the, what's it called, the heading there? What's it called? It's, it's an illustration, and it comes from light. So it's called what? Illumination. Illumination is the doctrine of God assisting his people in understanding the truth. And the Bible is very clear in 1 Corinthians that without the Spirit of God, we have a hard time, if not an impossible time, comprehending spiritual truths that are relayed to us through the prophets and the apostles. So we need the aid of the Spirit. And the Spirit is indwelling us all. We should be coming to the same conclusions, uh, not just that it's only the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit utilizing our human effort in working in the interpretation of the text and the research of the text. We should be coming to the same conclusions regarding the interpretation of the Bible. And when we talk about the interpretation of the Bible, one thing we spend time doing in bibliology is talking about our need to interpret it normally. And we learn that by the way the Bible interprets itself. It expects that the things that are promised in the Bible to be fulfilled normally. And when I say normally, I use that word in our teaching instead of literally. And why do you think I make that change? Why is it important to say normally as, as opposed to literally, although many people would mean normally when they use the word literally? Why? Because there are analogies, there are illustrations, there are parables in the Bible that if you were to take them literally in a woodenly literal sense, clearly that's not logically how anyone should read certain parables or analogies of the Bible. When it says God hides his people under his wings, we don't then think that God has wings. But we translate it normally in the poetry of the Psalms and say, this is a picture of God who's like a mother hen taking care of her children. And that's the picture, but it's not to be taken taken in a literally wooden interpretation, but we talk about normal. And we expand that historical, grammatical, linguistic interpretation of the text. Very important. Bibliology. Questions about bibliology. Interactive, last compass night of the decade. Any questions about that? Were any of you here when I was teaching on bibliology? Look at that. Hardcore. Questions? Comments? Moving on. Here we go. Theology proper. Theology proper. Theology proper articulates the person, purpose, and plan of God. Why is it important? Because it's indispensable. Since the one to whom we have to give an account is that God that we need to study and understand. We should look at his revelation, first of all, as self-revelation. What does God say about himself? And since I'm going to have to stand before him one day and give an account of my life to him, I better know all I can possibly know about the God who's revealed himself in the pages of the Bible. Theology proper. Theology, right? Theos is the Greek word that we translate, the most common Greek word for God. Theos is God. Theology is the study of God. We have to use the little word proper after it because we use the word in a double sense in referring to all the divisions of theology, all the divisions of God information. That's theology. The one section where we deal specifically with God, we've got to deal with that under the title of theology proper. Letter A, the Bible's very clear on this. There is only one God, one God. When the secularists or anthropologists talk about the three great monotheistic religions, what are they? Interactive compass night crowd. What is it? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Those three, if you look at the way these three came to be, they all find their roots in Abraham, religion of Abraham, and they all trace their theology back to God's dealings with Abraham. And of course, they're all monotheistic. Now, the Muslims call us polytheists. Why do they call us polytheists? Because God exists in three persons, and they have a hard time figuring that out, as do you and I. I understand three doesn't seem to equal one, but in the Bible, we're stuck with that. 
We have no other way to process the data of Scripture other than to come to the conclusion that there is only one God, as the Bible repeatedly tells us, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And if that's the case, then there must be some distinctions between those three because they speak to one another as distinct persons, and yet they all claim to be, in essence, one, co-equal, the same. So we're left with this doctrine of the Trinity. And if you struggle with that, welcome to the club. You have been a part of something that the church has been struggling with for years. And if you say, well, I got to teach the junior church this week, I got to figure out an illustration, water, vapor, ice, you know, the three leaf clover. Just stop with all of that. Because you get your kids in your Sunday school class to understand it at Awana Chapel, then they don't understand it. Because this is the incomprehensible revelation of God, self-revelation of God about his nature. And he is a God who is one in essence, three in persons. We still are a monotheistic religion, and yet we understand God to be a harmonious fellowship, an eternal fellowship existing in three persons. Not modalism, by the way. What is modalism? Modalism is the doctrine that there's one God who simply wears three hats, and at any given time, he's got one of those hats on. That's modalism. It's like me, sometimes the illustration, well, you know, like your daddy's, they'll say in chapel, like your daddy's, he's a father, he's also a real estate agent, and he's also the son of your grandparents. So he wears three different hats. Well, that's true, but that's modalism and that's heresy. That's not what the Bible teaches. So don't teach our kids heresy. And if you want to illustrate, if you want to illustrate it, just refrain from illustrating it. Just don't. Resist that temptation. God is perfect in all of his ways. What, what's usually the word we use to describe this? Holiness. The holiness of God. Holiness in its essence as a word means what? Set apart or separate. God is set apart or separate. And in that sense, we all looking from the grandstands of imperfection, look at this God who says, I'm completely different, completely other, completely removed from you in one sense, in the most basic sense, in that all of his ways are perfect. He does everything perfect, perfectly. He is perfect in all of his ways. He is holy. God is perfectly just. One of the things about his perfection is that he's just. Here's the rub for moderns. We don't like a God that's just. Uh, Only if it relates to our enemies, then it's okay. But we don't want him just with us. And we think God can somehow be a God that we think is good and perfect if he's not just. And you know my illustration that I use ad nauseum about that. And that's my campaign slogan for becoming one of the judges here in Orange County, which is vote for me, what? They all go free. Vote for me, they all go free. Do you think I'll get elected? Only by the criminals, right? No, I won't get elected. Even the criminals sometimes mad at another criminal and wants justice. So God is perfectly just. If he's not just, he's not good. And if he's not good, he's not God. Perfectly just. He's also compassionate and merciful. One of the first things we learn about God after we learn about his holiness on Mount Sinai is that he's a compassionate God, a merciful God, and he shows loving kindness and long suffering towards sinful creatures. So we understand God, though he is just and must be just, and he is perfectly just. There's this other side that you know creates a great problem, a conflict. It seems like this, at least from God's perspective, looking at sinful people, how can I be compassionate and merciful and loving to sinful people and maintain my justice? That's the cross. The confluence of his justice and his mercy comes together in perfect focus in the cross of Christ, punishing sinners and maintaining his justice by justifying us, by sacrificing his son. In a very real sense, God is the perfect standard. We say that as we study theology proper because there's not only what we call incommunicable attributes. What's an incommunicable attribute? Another word for that is a non-shared attribute. Those are things that we can't share. Give me some non-shared attributes. Just throw one out. Okay? Omniscient. I wish I was omniscient, but can't be. What is it? Omnipresent. There's another one that would be handy to have. Don't have that. 
Sovereign, someone said. Yep. Omnipotent, all-powerful, can't. Now, he is, though, the perfect standard for all of us. Though there are non-communicable attributes, there are communicable, like a disease, right? a communicable attribute, like your flu and your sneezing. Some things that I can have that he has and give me some of those. Compassion, loving, patient, kind. God is a perfect standard for us, which is a double-edged sword because not only is he the perfect standard, but he also is the thing that reveals our shortcomings. Christology, Jesus Christ. Why is this important? The doctrine of Christology teaches us our only means of salvation. It's the only reason for the incarnation. Right? Is his salvation being accomplished through the life, death, suffering, life, suffering, death, resurrection of Christ? That explains the work and person of Christ, which is indispensable for salvation, for, for saving faith. Without, salva- without Christ's reality of Christ's incarnation, we've we got a problem. We need to understand Christ. It is essential for us. It's indispensable. And the first thing we learn about Christ as we study him, he's unique. He doesn't fit into any category that we have. As we look back through the Bible from Adam, there's similarities there. Elijah, Moses, similarities there. The prophets, similarities. The kings, similarities. Priests, similarities. But we have no category for Jesus because he describes himself in ways that are completely bizarre. Comes on the scene, for instance, and is able to have this audacious authority to forgive sins, to accept worship. Just think of those two things. The one who forgives sins is clear in the minds of every Sadducee, every lawyer, teacher of the law, every scribe, every Pharisee. God alone can forgive sins because God is the one that we have sinned against. If you back into someone's car out there and it's not mine and I come up and say, oh, you're forgiven, you're going to say, what makes you think you can forgive me for backing into someone else's car? Can't do that. You didn't violate my car. You bash my car, I can consider forgiving you for that. (laughs) But if you bash someone else's car, I can't. Here's Christ forgiving sins against God. Not only that, he's accepting worship. The first thing in the Ten Commandments is you don't have any other God before. You don't have to worship anyone else. And anytime you see even an angel being worshipped, they uh, eschew that worship and don't allow it. And yet Jesus comes on the scene and proves that he has co-equal status with the Father, possessing all the glory and majesty of the Father. And yet at the same time, this is the mystery of Christ's incarnation. He is also fully man. He's a human being. He's a human being that has all the essential qualifications for being a human. That is hard for us to process. He lays aside the independent exercise of all of his divine attributes. There's a Greek word for that in Philippians 2, we often quote, that is the heading for this doctrine. If you really paid attention back then, what's that called? Starts with a K, kenosis. Remember that? Anybody remember? Smile at me if you remember the word kenosis. Kenosis. He emptied himself. That's taken into a lot of heretical areas, but we stay out of the ditches and we say, we understand that to mean God who puts on human form, the second person of the Godhead, independently lays aside the independent or exclusive exercise of his attributes. He relies on the Spirit and his Father, and he does show his divine attributes, but he does it in submission to God. We also learn that he's sinless, which creates problems for people because they say, well, if he's man, then he's got to be a sinner, but if he's God, he can't even be tempted by sin. Well, speaking of that, the Bible is very clear that Jesus was tempted as we are in every area. Well, how can that be? How can that temptation be legitimate? Well, it's a unique person we're dealing with, and we teach about this in what we call the hypostatic union, the two, the, the two natures of Christ, not commingled, but in one person we have divinity and humanity, someone who cannot be tempted by sin, and yet in his humanity perfectly and legitimately tempted to sin, and we have that difficulty in looking at that, and yet we understand there's something of his empathy in his humanity and something of his impeccability in his divinity. That's what we call the impeccability of Christ. But he comes on the scene 
to die for our sin. He's born in a manger as we celebrate this month so that he might die on a cross as the substitution for our sin. We deal with that a lot more in soteriology as we did this year, the atonement of Christ, but we certainly understand that as the apex of his earthly ministry to die for us. He rises from the dead, which the apostles spend more time talking about than any other doctrine, as I mentioned last week. It's one of the most important things to preach on in the book of Acts. And we have Jesus rising from the dead to validate and verify the payment for sin. If the wages of sin is death, then we expect Christ to pay for the penalty of sin and therefore eradicate the penalty. And he's going to prove that by rising from the dead. Bodily, I should say. Physically, visibly rising from the dead. That's why there was no body left in the grave. You understand that? Very important. We don't have Christ just showing up in some phantom body or extra body. The bones that were in his corpse were the bones that were in his resurrected body, only reconstituted and remanufactured, as I often say, according to the manufacturer's specs, and it's impervious to, to death and decay. That's important. One of the things that should govern your choices about how you bury your body and your loved ones. You're not going to bury your own body, but how you direct people to bury your body. Jesus is coming again. Just as he left, he made the promise The angels related in Acts chapter 1. Just as you see him go, people are going to see him come back. He's going to come back to that very mountain. As Zechariah says, his feet are going to touch on that mountain. So we need to be recognizing that that's the next thing on God's calendar and agenda. Jesus is coming again. Pneumatology. Pneumatology provides us with an understanding of the person and work of the one who indwells and leads us on a daily basis. That would be good to know the person. That person of the Godhead who lives within me. And the one who guides me, convicts me, directs me, prompts me. That's someone I need to learn about. So that is critical and essential information. We learn that the Holy Spirit is God. Co-equal with the Father, possessing all the glory, all the attributes of the Godhead. If someone says to you, well, the Holy Spirit, there are people out there who don't believe in the Trinity, of course. And they'll say, well, I believe there's a lot of verses about the Holy Spirit, but it's not a person. I know we don't have time for this, but how would you respond to that? Got intellect, emotion, and will. We can look at several passages that show he thinks... He feels and he acts and decides. Volition. Intellect, emotion, and will. Intellect, emotion, and volition. Those things, speaking as a person, and then the passages like in the upper room discourse, which is John chapter 14 through 16, he's spoken of in the third person by deity. The son asks the father to send another. And, and the way it's discussed, there's no way around the fact that we've got a unique person, an independent, distinct person, and yet in one essence, God. Of course, he comes into the world to convict the world of sin, not just, not just, not just Christians or pre-Christians, but he, he certainly is involved in convicting of sin. Now, people can harden their hearts and they can be turned over and all the rest, but the Spirit of God, that's one of his main activities. Now, we can look through all kinds of activities in the Old Testament about what he does, including having a part in creation, a very important part in creation, empowering uh, kings and filling artisans, and there's lots that he does, but One of the things that certainly comes to the fore in our study of pneumatology is his active and variety of ways that he convicts people of sin. Number three, letter C, the Holy Spirit regenerates people. We've been dealing with that in our study of soteriology. Regeneration, what does that word mean? Re means again and generation or genos means born, to be reborn. Old school, the way your grandpa said it was to be born again. The Spirit does that work. He also indwells us, which is a spatial analogy. It's a spatial analogy. What does that mean? We can't find a pocket somewhere in our torso where he is. This is an analogy of a relationship. And he is so intimately connected without barrier that he's described as indwelling us. The Holy Spirit gives us gifts, which is probably not the best way to say it, but he gifts us. He, 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 He provides a giftedness to all of his Christians, all of his people for ministry, Christian, regenerate people. 
Some people are sitting around waiting to figure out, and we talk about this in pneumatology a little bit, waiting to figure out what their gift is so they can use it. That's the old school way. A lot of churches have taught that. They pass out gift tests. Don't do that. Just find a need, get involved. God will direct and show you what you're good and what you're not good at, but God is going to endow you with something to contribute for the good of the church. Did you get all those? Pneumatology? Anthropology. Anthropology. The one class you can get at a secular university. We finally arrived at it. Anthropology. And that means anthropos is the Greek word for people. That's right. People or man. There is a word in Greek, an air, which is male. And then there's anthropos, which is the generic word for mankind, people. Anthropology instructs people to recognize themselves as they are. And this is very important. Unlike people that think we're just kind of a better socialized ape or an animal or a dog. And not even as good as dogs, actually, some people think, with the commercials I'm watching every now and then. Amazing. Uh, anyway, and what are we? We're different than every. We're categorically different than every other creature on the planet. We are made in God's image and super unique, completely distinct from the rest of creation in that sense. Nothing else is made in the image of God but us on planet Earth in material, tangible bodies. What can we learn about ourselves as we study anthropology? Well, we learn this, that God directly and instantaneously created Adam and Eve. That's the picture in the Bible. You may debate that. I don't have time to debate the full thing with you. We can ask questions in a second. But the teaching of the Bible is that God can speak a word, create something out of nothing, directly and instantaneously, and that's the way our humanity is described coming into being. We're made in the image of God. And the Mormons will tell you the image of God means that we have fingernails and lungs and a tongue and teeth. That's not what it means in the Bible. Very clear that we have intellect, emotion, and will even among the angelic class, and they are not made in a physical image. We're made in the image of God, which of course means we have a special ability to relate to other persons. The socialization of the ape thing that I was recently hearing about, we're much more than that. And in that sense, we studied this in anthropology, which was last year, wasn't it, we studied this? That human life is sacred. When God creates a person, those people then have a special sanctioned right to live and not to be killed, unless, of course, there's some other superseding sanction from God to kill that life, which there are in Scripture, but not for convenience or economics or whatever it might be with this whole abortion thing that's so popular tragically, in our society. We learn a lot about that when we study anthropology. We learn about the fact that we're to have dominion over the earth. We're not like most of these naturalists like to say, or the environmentalists in particular, that we're just kind of an intrusion on the planet. Whereas some of the environmentalists say, and I taught this in anthropology, they just need a big, we just need a nice big kind of plight or some kind of plague to wipe out mankind, kind of thin out the ranks so plants and dolphins can be happy again. No, we are to have dominion over the earth. We're not to abuse it, obviously. We're supposed to be good stewards of it. We're not to be wasteful about it, but we are to harness it. God intended that we take silicon and, and, and you know, we build computer chips and we make iPhones. That's certainly God's intention, that we harness the world that we've been given dominance and dominion over. Marriage, by the way, we got into a lot of thorny issues on anthropology last year. Certainly joins a man and a woman, which makes perfect sense because God commissioned couples to have children doesn't mean that you can't forego that for a kingdom purpose. You can, just like you can forego marriage for a kingdom purpose. You have organs that are made for sex, but you can, for the sake of the kingdom, forego that. You can, for the sake of the kingdom, forego having children, but that's not the norm, and you better have a good reason for, for doing it, biblical reason for doing it. A kingdom reason for doing it is a better way to say it. So marriage between a man and a woman, commissioned to be fruitful and multiply, to put it in biblical terms. Hamar theology. Hamartiology, the hardest one to say, hamartiology, ology is the same, of course, study of. Uh, hamartia is the Greek word for sin. Hamartiology informs us of the reality and the extent of our sinful problem and our need for salvation. Hamartiology informs us of the reality and extent, 
It's real. A lot of people deny that. And the extent, we certainly underplay that, of our sinful condition, our sinful problem. And certainly drives us to our need for salvation. What do we learn in homartiology? What did we learn? We learned that all people fell in Adam's sin. What's another phrase for that? People don't like this doctrine. What do they call it? Original sin. Don't like that original sin thing. Let's let everybody fall on their own. Well, if that were the case, there'd be no baby deaths. Did you ever think of that? If everyone fell on their own and there's no consequence from Adam's sin in anybody born, because everyone's born innocent and before God, if the wages of sin is death, no child should die until they make a moral decision to sin. Is that right? Does that not make sense? That's brilliant, Pastor Mike. Yeah. I mean, of course all fell in Adam. They're going to say, well, then spiritually, maybe physically, there's consequences from Adam's sin, but spiritually, then everyone's innocent. The Bible doesn't teach that. You're not innocent before God. We have all fallen in Adam's sin. Now, does God do gracious things with people? Uh, Of course he does. Does he save people that are two years old that die? I argued in this section of theology, yes, I believe he does. But it's based much like on other doctrines that I've already talked about tonight that have to be assembled from biblical propositions and principles. It's not, I can't point to chapter and verse. And I know you're going to point to David's child dying and that verse that doesn't apply. And we looked at that in this series. But nevertheless, we all have a problem that we inherit because of Adam's initial rebellion. Death was the sentence of human sin, which helps me with that logic of what I was just talking about. Wages of sin is death. Now, of course, there are kinds of death. What are the words I like to use for the two basic categories of death? See if you're really a Compass Bible Church listener. Some people call it, they call it spiritual and physical. What do I like to call it? Does anyone know? Relational is spiritual. It's spiritual, some people, what does that mean? Relational. You have a relationship with God that is damaged because of sin, severed because of sin, and biological. I'm going to biologically die, and I'm biologically dying, and... I'm relationally dead to God when I'm born. That's what it means to be dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians chapter 2. Very important. I've tried to debate with some philosophers. It's important for me to make this biblical assertion, which is right there. It's clear in Genesis 3, and that is that natural evil was imposed for man's sin. Natural evil is imposed for man's sin. I think I wrote something that was in the bulletin lately about this, that God, or maybe it was focal point, God is not allowing in Genesis 3 sinful, rebellious people to have a perfectly executable weapon. They're not, he is not allowing sinful rebellious people to have a perfect world. The, the, the risk there is too great. A world that can work perfectly becomes something horrible. As a matter of fact, we see another ex- extension of that in the Tower of Babel because there was something going on that was still perfect and that was universal communication. And God said, I'm not going to let that happen. Nothing will be you know, impossible for them. I've got to continue to limit them. So we're going to mess things up so that sinful, rebellious people have to live in a sinful world. Well, from the beginning, it started with the physical material of the planet, including the things our bodies are made out of, which is all the same of the stuff that's in the dirt. The material world was cursed. The weather patterns were cursed. Thorns in the garden, etc. Fallen people, though, just because they're fallen, they're not robots. They're volitionally deciding by choice with willful intent to sin. So I like to put it this way, and I did in this series, we compound the problem with our sin. Our problem was initially inherited in Adam, but we compound the problem. As it's put in Genesis or Romans 2, we store up wrath, just retribution. We store up God's just retribution, his wrath, for the day of God's judgment. So those are volitional decisions that we make, and we're, as I put letter E, held accountable for them. We're culpable. We're guilty before God. We are rightly condemned before God because of our volitional acts of sin. And you can say, well, if the wages of sin is death and we get the physical death just by being born of Adam, then maybe there's some kind of culpability for some child that dies. And the problem with that is, as you look at the passages that relate to culpability and punishment, they're related to volitional decisions to sin. 
But you can go back and listen to that if you'd like in that series. Letter F, sinful acts must be judged by God. Why? Because in theology proper, we learn that God is perfectly just. And therefore, he can't look the other way. He can't be like Brian McLaren or Rob Bell would like God to be. And that is, he just looks at sin and says, well, it'll be okay. God's so loving. And that's what it means for God to be loving. Well, if God is so loving that he negates his justice, well, then he's not God because you can't be perfect without perfect justice. So sinful acts must be judged by God. Soteriology, salvation. Soteriology tells us of the process and provision of salvation, obviously. So, soteria, soterias, and soter. Soter means savior, soterias, salvation, study of salvation. The provisions of salvation. This allows us to confidently follow and trust God's revealed plan of salvation. Everybody's got a plan that they, they want to propose, but we're looking at God's revealed plan in soteriology. We're studying that. Now, we just did that this year, so we can fly through this. Salvation is by grace, true or false? True. God predestines those he saved. We just talked about that. God declares sinners righteous. Now you're writing fast, aren't you? Salvation is by grace. We don't earn it. God predestines. In his election, he chooses sovereignly those he will save. God declares sinners righteous. Sin is paid for by Christ's death, not by my good deeds. It's not atoned for by my penance. All are called to repent and trust Christ. All are called to repent and trust Christ. Acts 17. God commands people everywhere to repent. Christians become increasingly holy. What's the biblical word for that? Sanctification. What kind of sanctification? Progressive sanctification, not positional sanctification. Positional sanctification is another way to talk about our adoption. It happens at justification. That's what God declares sinners righteous means. God's justification of sinners is him declaring them righteous, even though they're not. He justifies the wicked. God secures his own, his own people, that is, in their salvation. I just didn't have room for the word people. He secures his own in their salvation. We looked at that a couple weeks back perseverance of the saints. Salvation is by grace. God predestines those he saves. He declares sinners righteous. Sin is paid for by Christ's death. We're called to repent and trust Christ. Christians become increasingly holy. God secures his own in in their salvation. We've covered those things this semester, have we not? Moving on. (laughs) Ecclesiology. Ecclesia is the Greek word for church. Ecclesia meant called out. Ek, out of. Kaleo, to call. That's the basic idea. It means assembly or assembled group of people. The ecclesia. Our study of the ecclesia, the group of assembled people, is the church. Ecclesiology informs us of the value and the structure of the church. It encourages us to love and participate in the divine institution called the church. And if this, if there's any segment of theology that's important in these days and neglected, it's this one. I mean, a lot of people want to learn about how to be saved, but they don't want to go to church. They talk about, I'm, I'm spiritual, but not religious, which is trite. But even people want to say, I'm a Christian, but I don't go to church. God has called us all to be a part of the church, as I'll say here in a second. There is a universal church, which everyone claims to be a part of. When I'm seeing them and I say, oh, you should come to my church. Well, I'm part of the universal church. The universal church, you're right. There is a universal church, and that is a description of the save between Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, and the rapture. That's what I understand the church to mean in the Bible. The ecclesia, the church. All the saints, all the redeemed, regenerate people from the day of Pentecost until the day of the rapture, that is the church, in my understanding. Now, they never meet. They never have meetings. They never take an offering. They never have ministry opportunities. They don't produce a bulletin. They have no practical expression in this world other than if you're a part of it, that's a good thing because Christ died for the universal church. That's great. God's focus out of the 114 times the word ecclesia shows up in the Bible, 95 plus describe the importance and focus on the local church, a visible church, a church in your neighborhood, a church that you go to. 
So Christians are called to be. They are to be in a local church. You're to be a highly committed participant. You're supposed to be devoted there. You're supposed to be involved. You're supposed to say, that's my pastor. This is my church. These are my fellow church members. That's what it means to be a part of a church. Member is the word to be a a part of. You've got a part in it. You're You're a functioning part of it. All Christians are called to be a part of a church, a local visible church. Churches are to be led by pastors. I know that's not very popular these days. We like to come up with other ways to work, function, make the church function. But the church is supposed to be led by called, gifted, qualified, trained pastors. That's how God designed it. And I know a lot of people, and I don't always blame the people because they've had a, sometimes a long string of incompetent pastors. But the church is supposed to be led by pastors. And churches are to teach the Bible, obviously. It's one of the reasons you should pay your pastor, according to the Bible, is so that he can devote his time to praying and studying the book and teaching it clearly and accurately and well, and being able to shepherd and guide and direct and counsel and solve problems. And those pastors are to be given that freedom. And I can go off this week as I did and and study until my eyes got really sore on the millennial kingdom and the rapture and all those things while you went to work so that your pastors, and we took several of our pastors, I think all of our pastors there, so we could study and guide and direct and answer biblical questions. And that is what we do. And teaching is so important. Of course, we're to worship God. We're supposed to give our attention to the worship of God. We're supposed to be a called out group of people. And one of the main things we do is we recognize the connection between what we have that comes from God. That is critically important. The rest of the world does not give thanks to God. That's one of the descriptions of sinners in Romans chapter 1. They don't give thanks. We're supposed to be giving thanks. Churches are to practice the ordinances. We don't call them sacraments. Some churches do call them sacraments, but we looked at sacramentalism. Where did we, was that this semester? Did we talk about sacramentalism? We did, right? Yeah. Yeah, we don't believe in sacramentalism, that we somehow get God's imparted divine grace through the taking of the elements of communion or through the washing away of sin in the waters of baptism. We don't believe those things. Certainly I don't, and I don't teach those things, and you shouldn't believe those things if you're in this church. We practice the ordinances because they were ordained by God, and they're symbols and signs that God has given us, much like the Old Testament sacrificial system, which, much, which was much more elaborate, was given to the Old Testament church. We practice baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's what the ordinances are. And we're supposed to discipline our wayward. When we have people that uh, go headlong beyond the bounds of what the Bible says, we are supposed to discipline them. If you want to be rebellious about your discipline, we are to excommunicate you and tell you you're not welcome here. Um, that is what the Bible says. You're welcome to come back once you repent. And you need, as Spurgeon used to say, your repentance to be as notorious as your sin. That's the way to get back after rebelling against God's commands in the church. Universal church? Yes, there is a universal church. That's theologically true. Practically, though, God's focus on a local church led by pastors, teach the Bible, worship there, practice the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and be ready for church discipline if you're going to be wayward. Angelology. Angel, study of angels. That makes sense. Angel, though, is a Greek word that's transliterated. If you were to translate it, what would be a word that you might translate the word angelos into in English? Messenger, a messenger. The study of messengers in the Bible informs us of the supernatural support, because these are the supernatural messengers, the supernatural support and opposition that we face on a daily basis, because there's two categories. Understanding our enemy, in particular, this is important because it can prepare us for his attack. Much more discussion about demons and Satan than there is about good angels. So we understand in the New Testament, our focus should be on having a good defensive posture with the armor of God as one example so that we can prepare for this. Angels categorically, we study in angelology, are spirit beings. They are not dead relatives. They're not people that used to be humans. They're not disembodied spirits. They're their own class of beings created prior to human beings' creation. 
And they're no different than you in the sense that they have intellect, emotion, and will. They're made in one sense, although the Bible doesn't expressly say it in the image of God, because they have intellect, emotion, and will. That can be demonstrated in the Bible. But they are not made to indwell bodies. They're not made to be this homogenous thing that we are, physical and spiritual. Demons are simply fallen angels. Uh, matter of fact, the terms for it in the New Testament are the elect angels and the evil angels. Elect and evil. Two categories we call them, and the Bible calls them demons if they're evil, and the elect if they're just what we call angels. And of course, Satan is nothing other than a fallen angel. He's the head of the rebellion and the one who sinned against God. And what was his sin? Pride. That's why God takes that so seriously in the Bible, and he's willing to you to, to respond to you with opposition. He is opposed to the proud. God says that to Christian congregations and gives grace to the humble. So we need not be prideful. And the pride of Satan was wanting to be the one who has the glory of the Father. And in some small ways, our pride always seeks to do that. Demons seek to do us harm, not because they hate us specifically, but they hate our Father, and so they go after his kids, which is a great strategy of every terrible person, every terrorist, every person that wants to hurt someone, go after their family members. Demons seek to do us harm in a variety of ways tempting us to sin, reaping the penalty of our sin, and a variety of other things. God can protect us from demonic harm. Can, doesn't always, but he can. Uh, he could have protected Job from all the satanic harm and demonic harm that went on in Job chapter 1, but God chose not to. But he can, and often he does, and we certainly want to ask him to do so and do what we can to have him do so. And one day he will defeat all of the demons. One day he will defeat all demons. They will be punished. Eschatology. Eschatology motivates us to live in light of the future God has determined. God has mapped out a future. He didn't give us all the details, but he gave us a structural outline, and we should look at that and, a couple things, be comforted by it and encouraged by it, as well as motivated by it. It provides comfort and encouragement, as well as leading us to live a pure life. If we have this hope of a coming kingdom and seeing Christ face to face, it ought to purify us. And that, from 1 John chapter 3, we ought to learn to be pure as he is pure, because we see the coming eschaton. Oh, by the way, eschaton means what? End. Literally means the end or the last. Eschatology is to study the last things or the end things, the end time things. Real quickly here, we're going to finish on time maybe. Death transfers people to another reality. Death is not the end. The naturalist will say death is the end. Ignorantly ignoring the revelation of God to man and their conscience and creation, they think that death is the end. It's simply a translation, a turning, a transfer from one reality, one conscious reality here to another conscious reality of being disembodied, as you said earlier, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. And that is the reality of the translation of death. Death doesn't end, it simply transfers. All physical bodies will be resurrected. That's why I wouldn't even uh, be an advocate of uh, cremating a non-Christian. Not that God couldn't, but he's promised that he's going to raise even the non-Christians. So they need to be set aside and waiting for their resurrection. God's going to resurrect Christians and non-Christians alike. That may, is that new to anybody, by the way? Acts 24, 14, and 15. I said I wouldn't give any scripture in this one, but I just broke that rule on the last point. John 5, 28 and 29, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. Acts 24, 14 and 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. John 5, 28 and 29. Acts 24, 14 and 15. You got that one. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. I throw those out because some people think, oh, I didn't think non-Christians were going to get resurrected. They are. They're going to get resurrected so they can face the judgment. At the great white throne judgment, their bodies are going to be reconstituted. They're going to re-inhabit their bodies, and they're going to stand much like I'm standing here, only with a reconstituted body that's impervious to decay and death, and they're going to have to answer to their maker. God will judge all people. Two different kinds of judgment. What do we call their judgment? I already said it. Great white throne. What do we call our judgment? Bema seat. Those two 
judgments are for two different things. Just like the judgment at the Orange County Courthouse for sentencing, that's one thing. And the judgment at the Orange County Fair, that's another thing. There's two different kinds of judgments that go on. Did you just, that's the first time you heard that? Was that good? Good. I've said it like through the years too many times. I get tired of hearing myself say it. So I didn't, I don't, I haven't said it lately. All right. Jesus will return for his church. He will return for his church. The church is this program God has put together, I believe, between Acts 2 and the rapture. And he's going to come back and bring them to the marriage supper of the lamb. And we will enjoy his presence with a beam of seat thrown in there as well. It will be a gulp hard kind of day for every Christian. Then he's going to establish a kingdom for Israel. And if you want to know about that, ask any of the people we took this week to our conference. God has very specific promises he's made to the nation of Israel. And by that, I mean the national ethnic descendants of Abraham, in part to resemble them and regather them in the land. And they will be gathered there for purification and judgment. And then he will gather them to save them and and redeem them because of the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the great tribulation. That's my doctrine. That's how I teach it. I believe that's the truth. Jesus will establish a kingdom for Israel. And the last how long? thousand years. Repeated six times, I think it is, in Acts 20. The unsaved are going to suffer hell eternally. Hell is away from the presence of God, and not just the presence of God, but the glory of his power. Every good thing is created through the glory of God's power. A good meal, a good afternoon, a satisfying day. Those are the things that, are, that demonstrate the glory of God's power. Those will be removed. All of God's blessings will be removed. That's the passive punishment of hell. God will be gone and he'll take his goodies with him. Then there's the active involvement of God in paying back. Now that will not be the same for everyone. Someone who's horrifically evil is going to have a tremendously different experience than someone who just was casually ignoring Christ and doing his own thing, but being a nice Joe in society. They will suffer differently, but that decision once sealed is made and people will be there, as the Bible says, day and night forever and ever. And us, if you're forgiven, that is, a repentant sinner will enjoy God forever and we will enjoy the glory of his power, which is all his goodies in varying degrees, depending on the fruit that you bore, which had nothing to do with you being a missionary or a Bible translator or a pastor, has to do with you being the Christian that you should be in the environment God has planted you in, bearing fruit, making sure you're doing the thing that God has asked you to do and doing it for his glory. Now, that's good theology summarizing the last nine years. I wanted to spend the 10th year of Compass Night looking at bad theology. And here's the things I plan on talking about next year. The bad theology of Islam, Judaism, Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Jehovah Witnesses, Buddhism, Hinduism, Christian science, Scientology, Seventh-day Adventism, Atheism, and Satan. We'll end on Satanism right before Christmas. That's my lineup that I plan for next year. And that'll be a nice cap, nice cap, I don't know. That'll be an important study, I think, to look at all that we've learned. And I wanted to use this sermon. This would be a good one to listen to for your friend that you invite to Compass Night next year. Have him listen to tonight's lecture to get that great overview. I hope it's great of all these years of what you've studied. And then we're going to compare what we've just went through and see where these systems uh, express bad theology. Islam, Judaism, Catholicism, Mormonism, JWs, Buddhists, Hindus, Christian scientists, which are neither Christian nor scientists, Scientology, Adventism, Atheism, and Satanism. You guys have been champs two minutes late. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for this crowd. Thanks for this night. Thanks for this last nine years of studying your word. I pray it would bear fruit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.